Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. everybody and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Cool, huh? <laughs> I'm Cheryl Jennings. I'm a journalist and retired news anchor from ABC7 Television in San Francisco and I am your moderator for tonight's program. It is now my great pleasure to introduce today's distinguished speaker, Dr. Deepak Chopra, founder of the Chopra Foundation, co-founder of the Chopra Center for Wellbeing, and author of the new book, Metahuman, Unleashing Your Infinite Potential. Dr. Chopra is a world-renowned pioneer in integrative medicine and personal transformation. In addition to being the founder of the Chopra Foundation, he founded Chopra Global, a modern healthcare company positioned at the intersection of science and spirituality and transformation. Time Magazine has described Dr. Chopra as one of the top 100 heroes and icons of the century. He is a best-selling author with over 86 books, including 26 New York Times bestsellers in both the fiction and nonfiction categories. His newest book, Metahuman, was published October 2nd. And we are here today to celebrate his new work. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Deepak Chopra. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, George. Thanks, everyone, for being here. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club. It's always a great privilege to be here. Um, I have 20 minutes to help us solve the mystery of our existence, so I won't, <laughs> I won't waste any time. Uh, let me get to it as quickly as I can. So, meta means beyond. And metahuman means beyond the human conditioned mind. Simple. Meta, beyond the conditioned human mind. So as we look at deep history, as many historians do, they say that until about, say, 40,000 years ago, there were eight different species of humans. Um, the human family, just like when you look at the cat family, you have leopards and tigers and cheetahs and your cat and lions. They're all one family, but they're different species. Um, a species only mates within its own group. And so we are called Homo sapiens, which is a name we gave to ourselves out of extreme humility because <laughs> Homo sapiens <laughs> means the wise ones. Um, <laughs> But we gave names to other species as well. Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Neanderthals, Floroensis, Denisovians, and so on. And all of these uh, humans had, like other animals, they had a very primitive, rudimentary language. Basically mating calls, food calls, and danger in order to survive. You know, those are the three things we need to survive as a species. Till one species, us, created a language for telling stories. So we are the only storytellers amongst all the species, at least that we know. Um, other species don't have elaborate storytelling. And the first uh, storytelling was gossip. You know, who's sleeping with whom, who can you trust, etc., etc., which is still the dominant story of humankind, right? <laughs> Whether you believe in fake news or Trump or whatever, it's all gossip. Okay, Russia's hacking, etc. But then storytelling became elaborate. So the first stories were mythology, and then mythology became religion, which is cultural mythology. Most of it going back to the Bronze Age. And then we had philosophy, which means love of life and theology. And today this story is science. But it's a story. 
science is a human story based on certain modes of thinking, based on modes of observation, experimentation, and validation or falsification. Those are the basic principles of science. And it's an effective story. I mean, I took a plane to get here. We use the internet. We are on social media. And today's science is really um, the means by which we live. Without that, we wouldn't have air conditioning or any of the things that we take for granted. So we assume that science is the correct story. And um, what I'm here to share with you is that it's the best story, but no story can give us experience of ultimate reality. No story, whether it's quantum mechanics or science in any form. What is truth without a story? Who are you without a story? And ever since the scientific revolution, we've come up with basic constructs, human constructs, for modes of knowing and experience that occur in human consciousness. So atoms, particles, force fields, gravity, electromagnetism, these are human constructs for experiences, both perceptual and cognitive, which means mental, and based on those experiences and modes of knowing, we give labels to our experiences, and therefore, anything that you can give a name to is actually a human construct. So, as a result of that, we have the experience of the human universe through a human nervous system and through modes of questioning that humans have. We assume that's the truth, but Perceptual activity is different in different species. So as I was writing the book, it was very obvious to me that what we experience is a human experience through this brain, which is the instrument of observation. And in the book, you'll see, I talk about other species like the painted butterfly, uh, the painted lady, a species of butterfly that um, tastes the world through her legs smells the world through her antenna, hears the world through her wings, has 30,000 lenses in her eyes uh, that move like a kaleidoscope, giving it presumably an experience of shimmering colors, forms, and shapes. A snake navigates experience through infrared. We don't know what that experience is. A bat experiences the world through the echo of ultrasound and on and on. You know, I can give you millions of examples of how every species has its own mode of knowing and experience, which gives it a different perceptual experience of what we call reality. We call this reality because this is how we see the world. And this is how we experience the world. And so we say, this is the picture of the world. But this is not the picture of the world. This is the human picture of the world based on human constructs. And we came up with these constructs, like money is a construct. There was no such thing till we decided to come up with this money. Latitude, longitude is a construct. Gender is a construct. Nationality is a construct. Race is a construct. Uh, we came up with this and we navigate experience through this. You know, I came to San Francisco because Greenwich Mean Time and Latitude and Longitude is fed into a computer, and here I am. So we think this is reality. But let's say you were a baby and you were never exposed to any constructs, and you know, which starts as soon as we create language. Then if you were looking at this, you would have no idea that this is a microphone, okay? If you're looking at this, you would have no idea that this is a hand, or this is a body, or this is a building. What would you be experiencing? What would be your basic experience in consciousness? And it would be simply the following. Sensations, sensations, bodily sensations, 
but also the five senses, sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell. You wouldn't know this is Deepak speaking in English with an Indian accent. You would hear noise till you were told that this sound is English and has meaning. But we gave it the meaning, right? Before that, it was noise. Similarly, before you know this is a microphone, it's a shape, it's a color, it's a sensation. This is what we call raw experience. Everything after that, that we call reality, is a human construct. That includes not only the constructs that we are familiar with, like money, Wall Street, nation states, race, gender, age, these are constructs, right? All of them, even birth and death, are constructs based on interpretation that I am a body-mind and this is the world. And my body-mind is looking at the world. But if you actually examine this assumption, you'll see it's not true. There's no such thing as a body. What we call a body is a movement in consciousness, which is a perceptual activity. How do you know you have a body? You can see it. You can sense it, you can taste it, smell it, you can make noise with it. Basically, all experience is S-I-F-T, period. Sensations, which includes sense experiences, images, feelings, and thoughts. The rest is a story, it's a construct. But because we have a story that I'm a body, I'm a body, which is a ridiculous Assumption, because if you say I'm a body, which one do you, are you referring to? You had the body of a fertilized ovum, then you had a body of a zygote, then an embryo, an infant, a baby, a toddler, a teenager, this one, and at some point this will disappear. Okay, so this creates a lot of anxiety for people. If you look at the great wisdom traditions, they say human existential suffering, human existence, existential suffering. Animals, other species suffer if you inflict pain. But we suffer because we have constructs and imagination. So we know that there's old age, there's infirmity, there's death. And we have all these fears that come from this assumption that we are a physical body in a physical world. And so what I'm sharing with you is there's no such thing. It's all a construct. And other people have said this from Plato onwards. Nothing new about this. Uh, Wittgenstein, the German philosopher, said, we are asleep, our life is a dream. But once in a while, we wake up enough to know that we're dreaming. And uh, the Buddha said the same thing. He said, this lifetime of ours is transient as autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. And so this creates great fear in humans, existential fear. The wisdom traditions of the world also tell us that human fear comes from not knowing fundamental existence. There's inherent existence, and there is something called nominal existence. So this microphone has a nominal existence. As soon as I name it, I replace sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts, and call it an object. As soon as I call this body, this is a nominal existence too. Inherent existence is that which never goes away, which is not in time. So the wisdom traditions in particularly the non-dual traditions of India, Vedanta, they say humans suffer for five reasons. One, they don't know who they are. Two, they're grasping and clinging at experience, which is transient, ephemeral, uh, evanescent, goes away as soon as it occurs. Every experience that goes away as soon as it occurs. So indeed, our life is a dream. You know, if I asked you what happened to your childhood, it's now a dream. But if I asked you what happened yesterday, it's a dream. If I asked you what happened five minutes ago, it's a dream. By the time you hear these words, they don't exist. By the time you hear these words, they don't exist. So indeed, this moment 
is a lucid dream in a vivid now. So again, going back to the five causes of human suffering, we don't know who we are. Uh, we, we are grasping at a dream-like effervescent experiences, which leads to the third cause of human suffering, which is uh, the fear of impermanence, similar to the dream, because the dream is impermanent. The fourth is confusing our self-image, which is our ego, with our true self, which is the dreamer, not the dream, right? This right now is a selfie, it's not self, right? We have sacrificed the self for our selfies, which is the appearance. But what's behind the appearance? And the last, fifth cause of human suffering is the fear of death. So if you trace all these five causes, not knowing true reality, grasping, clinging at evanescent dreamlike experiences, the fear of death, identifying with the ego and fear of impermanence, then the solution to this is to wake up from the dream and find your true self. And that true self, we frequently refer to it all the time as I. Okay, so I was a baby. I am a married man. I am a son. I am a father. I have a brother. I am a writer. I like Chinese food. I don't like the current administration. On and on, okay? Every experience is preceded by I. Who or what is the I? Okay. If I asked you, where are you? You'd say, I'm here, which means I'm the body-mind. But you're not, because the body-mind is part of the dream, just like everything else. It's sensations, images, feelings, perceptions, and interpretations of that. So who am I is being the perennial question. If I asked you, who are you? Are you the changing body? Well, there's no... There's nothing there, because it's changing all the time. If I asked you, do you remember what you were thinking last Tuesday at 4.45, uh, most of you would say no, which means most of your thoughts are unimportant. You know, if you can't even remember them, they're unimportant. Do you remember your 15th birthday and what you were doing? Etc., etc. So, what is I? I is the awareness in which Everything appears and everything disappears ceaselessly, but I doesn't change. I is not in the body. The body is an experience in I. I has no container. Awareness has no container. Okay, why? Because it's invisible. You can't see your soul. Your soul. A soul is a good word, by the way, for fundamental reality. Or you can say conscious being, or you can say conscious agent, doesn't matter what you say, or you say the observer, but I has no location, and I has no existence in time, because it's formless. It modifies itself as sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts that we call the changing mind, body, world experience, and it's a unified experience. Okay, so this is how all these Wisdom traditions came up with meditation and mindfulness and awareness and all these very complicated um, techniques and some simple, but to go beyond thought. Because unless you know the source of thought, you're not talking about reality. Thought is just a movement in consciousness, in awareness. So is perception, a movement in consciousness. So I don't know what our perception of change is, but what I'd like to do is ask you a question, and the answer is yes or no. So the question is, are you present right now? Yes. Okay, can you be a little more enthusiastic, please? <laughs> are, you, are you present right now? Yes. Cheers. Who did you consult? So you would say, I consulted myself, right? And you didn't have to think about it. You just said yes. So where is the self? What is the self that you consult before any experience? You have to exist. And you have to know that you exist. 
So let me ask you the question again. Are you present? But this time, don't answer it, please, till I raise my hand. Okay? Agreed? Are you present right now? Yes. So are you present is a thought. The answer is yes is a thought. In between is you. It's as simple as that. You are the awareness that modifies itself into thought, but also into perception, also into sensation, also into imagination. Imagine right now a beautiful sunset on the ocean. See a picture? That picture is in your awareness, not in your brain. There's no pictures in the brain. There are no sound, sounds in the brain. There are no sensations. There are no images, no feelings, no thoughts. The brain itself is a perceptual activity. Okay? Is this clear? So Once again, <laughs> this time I'm going to ask you, are you present? Don't answer it. Just be present to yourself. Instead of listening to me, be aware of that which is listening. Are you present right now? This presence is the only thing that's real. And it's not in time. That's why in the great traditions of the world, in the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna says, Water cannot wet it, wind cannot dry it, weapons cannot shatter it, fire cannot burn it. It's eternal, it's timeless, and it is not subject to birth or death. And all our suffering comes from human constructs, which we made up, just like we made up Greenwich Mean Time. Why not Botswana Mean Time? <laughs> okay? We made it up. That's part of our colonial heritage. <laughs> so... That's all. We have to wake up from the dreamer to the dream. I'm going to show you two slides and then Cheryl can come up and we'll answer your questions. So let me show you just two slides. Waking up, this is what happens. Waking up from the dream to the dreamer. There's a shift in sense of self. I'm not the body-mind or the world. I'm the awareness in which the body-mind is an experience. It, the experience is changing, but I am eternally present to all experience, therefore not subject to birth or death. A change in emotions, no drama, but love, compassion, joy, equanimity, because there's no sense of separation. A change in cognition, quieter mind and reflective mind, no ideological frameworks to identify with, just the quiet, reflective mind. A shift in perception to present moment perception, even luminous perception. Because fundamental reality is very subtle. This perceptual experience is not so subtle. A shift in memory, sharper memory, but not victimized by memory. So in the Shiva Sutras, they say, I, I, I respond to memories, but I'm not victimized by them. I, use memories, but I do not allow memories to use me. As a result, inner vision, insight, intuition, vision, creativity, experience of flow, no resistance, no regrets, no anticipation, ultimately leading to ecstasy and transcendence, and a loss of sense of personal agency, which means synchronicity constantly guides our experience without feeling, I'm doing it, it's happening. Surrender to the mystery, and ultimately, loss of fear of death. So we've been doing some research on this, and we find that this is actually what people are having these experiences right now. And um, it's, show me the last slide. I don't think we saw the last slide, the final slide. Okay, this was it. So before that, before that. Okay, so who are we when we wake up to the dream? This is who we are. This is the dreamer. Infinite possibilities, awareness, formless, without cause, irreducible, infinite, fundamental, unpredictable, infinitely creative, unfolding through synchronicity, harnessing the power of intention and attention, and free of its modifications. We are intrinsically free of thought because the awareness of a thought is not a thought. 
The awareness of a perception is not a perception. The awareness of the body is not the body. And it's spontaneously self-organizing, self-regulating, sense, self-evolving. And it is rooted in the knowing of I am, I exist. That still being in the presence of changing experience. Uh, the great Sufi poet Rumi said, God's language is silence. Everything else is poor translation. So <laughs> thank you for listening to the poor translation. Thank you, Dr. Chopra. That was amazing. And I know we have a lot of questions from the audience right now, so I want to get started on that right away. Uh, the first question says, how can we reduce stress, which there seems to be so much of today? So stress is the worst use of imagination. Okay? And creativity is the best use of imagination. And reality is beyond imagination. It's that still presence. So get rid of stress and replace it with creativity just by being present in the moment to what is happening right now. Ask yourself the same question I asked you, am I present? And then do the other things, sleep well, exercise, do some yoga, breathing, watch your food, um, get in touch with nature once in a while, and enjoy happy relationships. Relationship is the most important thing because we don't live as separate selves, we live in relationships. Focus on what the wisdom traditions call divine emotions. Love, compassion, joy, empathy, equanimity. He practices what he preaches. He is counting his steps. He's got his Fitbit on, right? How you doing? All right. <laughs> Not quite 10,000, but you'll get there. You've got a long day ahead of you. Uh, you were talking about stories, and in your book, Metahuman, you were saying that the vast majority of people are trapped inside routine, habits, old conditioning, secondhand beliefs, and they keep repeating the past because they're afraid of new unknown things. So you, that goes back so to So for every fears. story you have, in, by the way, in the Eastern wisdom traditions, the story is called karma. Okay, karma is identifying with a story and being bound by the story. So karma is a prison. Uh, Rumi again, he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is wide open? And the reason we stay in prison is we identify with a particular story of past and its interpretation. But for every story that you identify with, there are infinite other stories, versions. For every thought you have, infinite other thoughts. For every question you have, infinite other questions. For every answer you receive, infinite other answers to receive. So question your story. Ask yourself once in a while, who would I be without a story? And in fact, you would be infinite possibilities. And then choose selectively the stories you want to identify with. You said a lot of that is based on fear, that to find peace, you have to overcome it fear. It gives us a provisional identity. The story gives us a provisional, what we call nominal identity. There's nothing real about it, nothing real. It's a made-up construct. And so, but it's a prison, right? Awareness without a story is all stories or no story. That's one of the Buddhist principles also. It's called right perspective. It says right perspective is all perspectives or no perspective. It sounds good, but how do we get ourselves out of that? Read the book and follow the, <laughs> follow the 31 days of practice of the book. Read the it book. A, you know, it took, took me, my journey was internal medicine, endocrinology, neuroendocrinology, neuroscience, mind-body medicine, integrative medicine. I finally realized it's all a story. Everything is a story. Some stories are more helpful. But that's why I wrote this book. What is beyond the stories is infinite. And beyond birth and death. You talked about your early days. Um, one of the stories I read about you said that you were drawn to life as an actor or a writer, and then you became a doctor, and years later, now you're a performer on stage and everywhere in the world. 
and a writer. So you have fulfilled that original dream. Yeah, but it was not planned. I mean, as a kid, I wanted to write books and I wanted to write fiction, but my dad wanted me to be a doctor. So, you know, you do what your dad tells you to, but <laughs> I rebelled. And when he was 14, he gave me some books, fiction books, Somerset Mom, and they were all about doctors. So I said, okay. <laughs> I ended up being a doctor and writing stories. But then you came to America, and we talked backstage briefly about this. It was not easy. A young intern, a wife, two kids, $400 a month income. Smoking cigarettes. You were doing all the wrong things. Sneaking alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Goodness. All right. But then everything changed. It took a while. Uh, You know, all my residency and all my internship and fellowship, I was struggling. It's only after I started practicing and also looking at what we now call the molecules of emotion that I realized there was more to our existence than just the body. But there were some specific things that happened to you. You picked up a book on transcendental meditation. Yeah, that was part of my story as mm. well and my encounter with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and, and the Beatles and all that. That was an interesting phase in my life. But did it... Did that meditation at that point in time change everything for you? No. Meditation was something I took up after I decided I was going to change. And that was part of the practice. So I gave up smoking. I gave up experimenting with stuff. (laughs) And I changed everything all at once. Wow. Including taking up meditation. And you quit your job at one point. I quit my job much later, impulsively, because I wasn't happy. That's so frightening for most people to give up that security. Yeah. I I actually walked out of my fellowship, was moonlighting in an emergency room at $5 an hour, making ends meet. But it was worth it. And look at you now. Yeah. <laughs> um, back to your early days. Um, you knew that because you came from India, you felt that the doctors with whom you were working were uh, thought of you as less. There was discrimination against well, you. Well, this is during the Vietnam War, and yeah. so um, or the end of the Vietnam War, yeah. and there was a shortage of doctors, so we were recruited as basically labor. And the the American doctors had a snooty attitude towards us. But we managed. So we're talking about stories. You knew that that was going on. Um, In your book, you say that we are not shaped by what happened to us since birth. We were shaped by what we thought about those happenings. Yes, because again, experience and then there's interpretation of experience, right? So two people could be having the same experience, a joyride in Disney World, and the kid is having fun and the adult is scared, right? Same thing. Or the same sensations in an airplane, completely different meaning than the joyride in um, Disney World. So every experience we have is just that, sensations, perceptions, images, feelings, and then the thought, which is the interpretation. And we get bamboozled by that, by the interpretation, not realizing that most of our thoughts are recycled everybody else's thoughts. But back then, you didn't have the realization back then that you have now about how to get through it. I didn't. What helped you get through that? Constant reflection. Wow. And meditation and just being obsessed with, is what I'm experiencing the real reality. This is not the real reality. This is a projection of the human conditioned mind. And this has been going on for ever since we started language. So, you know, we've been conditioned by religion, philosophy, theology, mythology, politics, economics, uh, our ancestral histories, and we think that's the truth. So, but it isn't. Just because everybody says it doesn't mean it's true. So speaking of religion, do you believe in a higher power? Again, belief is a cover-up for insecurity, any belief. If I asked you, do you believe in electricity? You'd say, why are you asking me that? I can see the light. So higher power is just awareness without a belief system. 
aware, and then you know that that's where my insights come from, my creativity comes from, my imagination comes from, and without that, this wouldn't be an experience. So you don't have to believe in a higher power, you must experience it, and you must know it, and that is faith. Faith is knowing yourself as an invisible, formless being and trusting that self. Belief is a thought. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. A question from the audience. How do you get rid of limiting beliefs about yourself that make it harder to reach your infinite potential? Well, many people have written about this. So if you want a very simple kind of um, explanation of this, you should read uh, Katie Byron. She says, take any belief, write it down, and ask yourself, is it true? Take any belief. I will never be um, the president of the company. I'll never lose weight. I'm not beautiful. Write that down. And then ask yourself, is it true? There's only two possibilities, yes and no. Then ask yourself again, am I 100% sure if it's true? Yes and no. Then ask yourself, who would I be without this belief? And write that down. And then you ask yourself, what is the opposite of this? And say, why not that? I mean, there's lots lots of uh, ways to get beyond these limiting beliefs. And this is called cognitive therapy. And there's something even beyond that. It's called awareness-based cognitive therapy. Observe a sensation, observe a perception, observe mental space, and recognize that the awareness of that space is not who you are. I mean, the awareness of that is who you are, not the awareness of a sensation, the awareness of a perception, the awareness of a thought is not the thought. You're intrinsically free of all beliefs, good or bad. Also hope and despair. You know, people use this word, hope, hope, hope. Well, you only use it because you're in despair. (laughs) The truth is, your true self is independent of hope and despair. The true self is creative. And that's our essential nature. We are creative beings. We don't stop. Every child, you know, there's a phrase in India, every child that is born is proof that God has not given up on human beings. But we screw it up, you know, <laughs> by, by giving people limited identities. You're Indian, you're male, you're this, you're that, you're rich, you're poor, and now you're screwed. <laughs> and it wasn't even your fault. <laughs> okay, um, another question from the audience. Do you recommend any periods of abstention from phones and computers every week or, or whatever? Yes, I do. I think what you should do is, first of all, if you think you can get rid of technology, you can't, okay? It's part of our human evolution. We've created technology. You can be victimized by it or you can be creative about it. So, you know, technology is neutral. I would say select times. I do this with my own life. Uh, There's sleep time, there's exercise time, there's yoga time, there's uh, meditation time, there's relationship time, and there's technology time. And so choose selective periods. In my case, morning, afternoon, and once again in the evening. Put it away. And then before you use it, ask yourself, is it useful what I'm going to say? Is it helpful? Is it true? If not, don't bother. All right, so speaking of social media, he is a machine, I'm telling you. I went to his website and it said, you can text Deepak, and I thought, how exciting, and so I did. And I got a text back with a heart. (laughs) 
So that's an AI bot. I thought uh, I was special. It, it, it knows me better than I know myself. I loved it. It was great. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Another question from the audience. What drives you at the core? What drives you? Self, money, fame. What drives me at the core is mystery. I'm convinced that there is no human explanation for existence or awareness of existence. You know, we are not, if you look at scale right now, what science is telling us, and science is a model, by the way, it, it actually takes human experience and gives it constructs. So, but according to current science, there are two trillion galaxies. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, which is a hundred billion stars. Extend that to two trillion, and you get 706 trillion stars. You get uncountable trillions of planets. According to current cosmology, there might be 60 billion habitable planets in our own Milky Way galaxy. They, you know, they test the biosphere through Hubble telescope and the James Watson telescope. So we are not, our entire galaxy is not even a speck of cosmic dust in the junkyard of infinity, because now we've created junkyards in outer space too. We are not even a grain of sand in all the beaches of the Earth. And as a species, we are not even equivalent of a virus. A virus would be too big. So to have this presumption that we know the cause of existence and the awareness of existence is hubris, total arrogance. So what drives me is this idea that life is a mystery. If you're not perpetually surprised that you exist, then your humanity <laughs> is incomplete. <laughs> Speaking of that, in your new book, you say that you focus on two breakthrough ideas. Consciousness is the fundamental stuff of creation, and existence can take care of itself. Yes. If I asked you right now, what are you doing to regulate your heart rate? What are you doing to regulate your blood pressure? What are you doing to digest your food? What are you doing to fine-tune your immune system? What are you doing to do anything that we take for granted, to go to sleep, to move your bowels or to urinate, it's all happening, right? And it's synchronistic. The human body can think thoughts, play a, play a piano, kill germs, remove toxins, make a baby all at the same time. Can you do that with effort? So life takes care of itself. And this is, every religious experience will tell you that. But not religious dogma, but religious experience is just three things. Transcendence, the emergence of platonic truth, Harmony, goodness, beauty, love, compassion, joy, peace, and the loss of the fear of death. Everything else is ideological. You're talking about the fear of death. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who... Because, you know, I'm 73 and oh. I'm confronting it. And I'm realizing we're all on death row. And <laughs> the only uncertainty is the method of execution and the length of reprieve. So, unless you realize that you're being stalked by death, your life is not magical. Your life is magical when you realize there's something beyond death. And that's the self. That's awareness. That's not perceptual activity. That recycles, by the way, and also evolves. Everything recycles. We are told these days, even plastic. So, matter recycles, <laughs> energy recycles, information recycles. Why wouldn't consciousness recycle? Why would you be the only exception? Your friend Wayne Dyer. Yes. The late Wayne Dyer. Um, his family posted a social media message that said he was excited about beginning his next journey, mm -hmm. that he was not afraid of dying. Yes. And you knew him so well. Yes. So what lesson can we learn? Because a lot of people are afraid of I think dying. The only way to get beyond the fear of death is to recognize it as much as a mental construct as latitude and longitude, as the border between Canada and, and the U.S. 
that we made it up. There's no death. Death is based on a false premise that I am the body. The body is an experience in you, in awareness, which has no location, space-time, which is infinite and formless. And you have to experience that. You know, Tagore, the great Indian poet, <clears throat> he said, in this playhouse of infinite forms, I caught sight of the formless. And so my life was magical. Question from the audience, is consciousness part of nature? Is consciousness? Consciousness part of nature. If so, consciousness and biology make up, do they make up our reality? Consciousness is the only reality. And it modifies itself ceaselessly as sensations, perceptions, images, feelings, and thoughts. Without that, there's no experience. So... Everything is consciousness. This microphone is an experience in consciousness. Your body is an experience in consciousness. Consciousness right now is having this experience, this experience, this experience, this experience, this experience, go out, and that experience, all simultaneously. It's not here, okay? This is in consciousness. All right, I have a question from the audience. It says, where are you on the mind awakening spectrum? One to 13. I don't know what that means. Mind awakening the, spectrum. The awakening from the dream. Okay, got it. Where are you on the... Uh, I would say I'm on the edge. I just need to jump. <laughs> <laughs> what daily habits can you implement to be more mindful of your infinite possibilities? I practice meditation, yoga, breathing, exercises, self-reflection. I do yoga nidra before I go to sleep. I meditate on my death. And, um, uh, but I don't think you need to do all that. You just need to be present to now. Now is not a moment in time. Now is timeless. This is timeless. What's happening, changing is the experience. Now never ends. And we are now, always. Even imagination of the future and the past is now. You said the construct of time, once you know about time, you can't unknow it. Once you learn a language, you can't unlearn it. Once you learn to walk, you can't unlearn how to walk. Once you emerge from the womb, you can't return to it. Okay, so yes, you can't unlearn it, but you can also be intrinsically free of it by recognizing that it's a transient, momentary experience, gone, before you catch it. Another question from the audience. Given what you profess, how can our government officials get on board to become more effective and less divisive? Forget it. <laughs> Just don't Wait, even try. there's more. There's more. What we need is a critical mass of people waking up to their true self. Period. <laughs> Otherwise, the rest is histrionics. It's melodrama. Whether you choose the good side, you're activist, you're humanitarian, you're sucked into the drama, and you, you become part of the polarization. So wake up, hang out with people who are waking up, create a critical mass, and have the intention for a more peaceful, joyful, sustainable, healthier world. But start with yourself. Okay, well, um, I'll throw that question away. There we go. <laughs> no, that was a good question. Um, how did you arrive at the non-local field of information with self-referencing cybernetic feedback loops? as the definition of God. That was like uh, um, 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> but God is definitely not a dead white male, okay? <laughs> Somewhere there, okay? God is infinite potential, and it is the self of the individual. You are God in drag. That came from uh, Ramdas. Okay, he used to say, "The divine in you is the divine in everyone." 
we are actually divine beings having this experience, non-local beings. So think of God even as an acronym, generation, organization, and delivery of all experience. In every, not only in humans, but all living beings. And they're having their own experiences. So we are species of consciousness. And pure consciousness, without being tethered to constructs, is God. God is therefore inconceivable. Okay? God is, if you can think about God, conceptualize God, imagine God, then it's not God. Okay? The infinite cannot be conceptualized, but it can be experienced as your own self, without, before the constructs. I showed you the slide. Awareness prior to constructs. That's God. Therefore, we are all. The self of the individual is the self of the universe. Beyond the secret passages and the dark alleys and the ghost-filled attics of your mind, there is God. There is only God. You quote Krishna Menon on what is reality, and he answers a question, should we follow a personal God? I say no, because a personal God is nothing but a concept. Truth is beyond all concepts. And I know I heard some people gasping when you were talking about there is no So if God. you can yeah. think about it, if you can imagine it, if you can conceptualize it, if you can um, describe it, it's not God. It's not the truth. God is prior to all concepts prior to all concepts, including the concept of God. So there's a joke that man ended up in heaven and he confronted God and they both said to each other, thank you for making me. <laughs> That's the conceptual God. Along those lines, you have a chapter in Metahuman entitled Existence and Consciousness are the Same. You grew up in India, you went to school that was taught by Catholic missionaries, and you say that after you read the book of Genesis, in your imagination, you ponder that Adam and Eve would ask God, why did you create the world? So, do you still have those conversations with yourself on this issue? Yeah, but you see, that, that's a stage in development. If consciousness is creative, it can't help creation. Consciousness, as without creation, is unstable. Even scientists today say the quantum vacuum, which is their concept of fundamental reality, is unstable. It has to brim with virtual particles, and some of them become real and end up as the universe. So, the most fundamental state of existence is inherently creative. It cannot help being creative. Consciousness cannot help being conscious. So remember, consciousness and conscious experience are two different things. Right now, you're only conscious of what is happening right now. But there's also the unconscious mind, and then there's the fundamental non-local mind. So the unconscious mind is regular, we call it the autonomic nervous system. Right now, you know, everything is being regulated for you automatically without your conscious experience. Your conscious experience is like one little sliver, like a, a wave on the ocean of consciousness, or even a drop. Rumi, we are not just drops in the ocean, we are the ocean in the drop as well. What is your biggest advice to students and young people pursuing their passions? Audience question. I would say to young people, don't get bamboozled by what you've heard through education. You know, it's, education is information overload. And right now we don't need it. You need information, Google it. You know, <laughs> stop wasting your time by getting education. The word education means edu-core, to bring out what is at the core of a human being. And what is at the core of a human being is infinite potential, immeasurable. And that's why we need in our schooling, in our kids, 
self-awareness as a very basic form of education. All the methodologies to improve self-awareness. Otherwise, you know, you can... Most people, you know, don't go there at all. And emotional development stops at age eight in most people, hmm. which uh, doesn't prevent you from running for president of the United States or becoming one. <laughs> or becoming one. So you're not going to run for office? No. Oh, okay. Political office is about cronyism, influence peddling, corruption, power mongering, and being a tug. That's all 99% of world leaders are gangsters. And it's our fault. Because we got them there. So we can do something about it. We can. By being the change we want to see and actually being very reflective about who we want. You know, true leadership, true leaders, and there are a few, by the way. Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, there I could name a bunch of them. They had integrity, they had authenticity, they took responsibility for their actions, and they had a higher calling. Those are the four things that great leaders have. But the rest are thugs. Don't mince any words, okay? Just spit it right out there. It's the fact. <laughs> All right. Um, you say that if we remove stress, it gives creative thinking a chance to emerge clearly. Yes. Stress is the perception of threat, whether it's psychological threat or physical threat or financial threat. It's an interpretation of threat. Beyond that is the creative mind. So the more we get in touch with our core essence as beings, see, we are called human beings. So that's the fundamental reality. Then feelings. Feelings are more fundamental than thinking. Every organism feels its way, even microorganisms like amoeba. They don't have a brain, but they feel their way. So being is fundamental. Feeling is close to being fundamental. The highest feeling is love because it connects us with each other. And then thinking is a third mortality, but most people don't think reflectively. They think dogmatically. So the highest form of thinking is self-reflection. And then speech and action should follow that. Now, in the traditions of yoga, that's called literally Raj Yoga. Bhakti, Raj Yoga is self-reflection and self-awareness. Bhakti Yoga is love. Gyan Yoga is reflective self-inquiry. And Karma Yoga is action without uh, personal motivation, period. Question from the audience. What are three favorite Bay Area natural habitats for immersion in a peaceful environment? Say that again. <laughs> three Bay Area natural habitats for immersion in a peaceful environment. Are you familiar with the Bay Area? I am. Okay, so do you have three favorite places that make you feel good when you go outside? I like the redwood forests. I like everything about California. I mean, it's an amazing state. You have mountains, you have desert, you have ocean. We have everything. We have the forests. We need to preserve it. We need to be a little more aware that what we call the environment is our body. You know, the air is our breath, the trees are our lungs, the earth is recycling as our physical body, the rivers and the oceans are our circulation. So we have a personal body, we have a universal body, they're both equally ours. You put a rabbit in a vacuum, it'll die. You put a plant in a vacuum, it'll die. You put them both together, they both survive, because they're one. You and the universe are the same activity. You said the earth is in peril. You're trying to reach a billion people. Yes. So can you talk about that? It's a dream that if we had a billion people, which is, you know, one-seventh of the world's population, but actually other people say less, critical mass. Mm -hmm. If you had a critical mass of people who were self-aware, the world would change. So my hope is that if there's a billion people and today we have the technology through social networks and media and education. If there were a billion people who were at peace with themselves, we would have peace in the world. Who were living sustainable lives, you'd have sustainable world. So we can move that needle in the direction 
of a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. Otherwise, by the way, we're looking at extinction. The last extinction was 65 million years ago when a meteorite fell on Earth and dinosaurs were wiped out. And so we came, thanks to that extinction. If we get wiped out, something else will come. Nature doesn't like a vacuum. So nature might decide that the human experiment was very interesting, but it didn't work. <laughs> Let's not go there, hopefully. <laughs> I was looking at the schedule you have. You have 13 appearances in less than a month from New York to California to Florida. I don't. My body does. I don't leave home. <laughs> how do you manage, how does your body manage the stress? I sleep eight hours, I walk 10,000 steps, I do my yoga, I do my meditation, and then I do what needs to be done. And I'm not bound by it. So you can take yourself out of that situation if you feel like it gets overwhelming? Never gets overwhelming. Well, good. We For can. me. That's good. Well, that leads me to... I also surrender to uncertainty. When you surrender to uncertainty and you miss a plane, it's not a big deal. Oh. Okay. So that leads That's, to That's, by the way, Wayne Dyer and I used to have this conversation. Yes. If you start with day, your day with saying, I surrender to uncertainty, then nothing ever goes wrong. <laughs> That's a very healthy way to look at things. So what is your greatest challenge and how do you deal with it? I don't have a challenge. I, I'm frustrated sometimes by the fact that we could all be having a more joyful life and yes. we screw it up. <laughs> you believe that human possibility is limitless and with proper knowledge and practice, humans can lengthen their life, achieve perfect health and achieve all their dreams. I'm signing up for that plan. I love that. That's why we're here tonight. We want to know how to do that. Be aware. That's all. Look always at creative possibilities and understand that everything we call an adversity is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. You just reframe how you interpret experience, basically. It's up to us. There are some things, wellness practices, that you do recommend. You had talked about in the old days you were smoking and doing things that you shouldn't be doing. What specifically should we be doing that we can do right now that won't cost Avoid us Avoid toxicity. Toxic relationships. Yes. Toxic people. Toxic food. Toxic environment. Toxic workplaces. And create your own experience and your ecosystem that is more in the direction of joy. That's it. These days, we can all do that. I'm actually right now on a global campaign called Never Alone. Please look it up, neveralone.love.org. And this came about as when I find, found out that the commonest cause of death in young people these days is suicide. Mm -hmm. So this is a terrible thing that our young people between the age of 10 and 30 it's not just celebrities. It's not just, you know, big shots that we think of. It's everybody is depressed. Existential depression has reached, become an epidemic. And that is because we all live lonely lives. And social networks are making us even lonelier. But we can use them to actually connect. So this is a global campaign. It's called neveralone.love.org for suicide prevention and mental health. It's a non-profit. And we want to create ecosystems of mental well-being uh, throughout the planet. And I was, when we started it as a GoFundMe, uh, it took us less than a week to fund it through public uh, funding. So we know that people want this. And it has to be grassroots. It can't be controlled by corporations or by politicians. It has to be managed by people locally. So again, in the Indian tradition, we say there are three keys to creating a healthy being and a healthy society. Seva, which means service. Satsang, or Sangha, which means community. And Simran, which means spiritual practice. 
So service, sangha, community, and spiritual practice. And we can all do it. We can do it together, and we can help each other do it. And that's what the Never Alone campaign is about. That's fantastic. Yeah. I love that. We are almost out of time. I know that you probably have a final thought that you want to leave people with. Take it easy. <laughs> That's all. Dr. Chopra has a birthday coming up. Happy birthday. <laughs> Our thanks to Dr. Chopra. He is the founder of the Chopra Foundation, the co-founder of the Chopra Center for Wellbeing, and of course, author of this incredible book, MetaHuman. I encourage you to stick around, get him to sign it, or if you can't, just get the book. It's great. Um, Unleashing Your Infant Potential. We want to remind everybody that the copies of this book are for sale outside, and he's going to be signing them on stage, right, for a few minutes. All right. So I want to thank everybody for joining us, and we are going to... Switch sets here, and I'm going to get up and I'm going to click the gavel because I'm supposed to do that. And then this meeting is adjourned. Dr. Chopra. I have to do this. <laughs>